no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm okay. And the world did, in fact, end on Thursday. No, not really. I was just, I just wanted to see what it felt like to say that. Uh, yeah, and because, I, like, I like doing it during a podcast, something yeah. that you can listen to right? Yeah. whenever. So, yeah, you never know. But yeah, but uh, yeah, we creep closer to the to the precipice, but we have not yet fallen off. We haven't seen the end of media. We have seen the end of some of the executives working in media because of various horrible things they did to their employees. Uh, and there's been a lot of, I think, really interesting discussion about how people come back from those situations, which is something we'll have to talk about on a podcast in the future. Definitely. Like, well, know. we are we're excited today to be joined with by uh, Macarena Hernandez, who is a journalist and an educator who covers U.S. Latino issues such as immigration and education. And her work has been published in The Washington Post, The New York Times, The L.A. Times, Latina and many other publications throughout the United States. Macarena, how are you? Oh, my God. I'm so thrilled to be here. This is so exciting. I have a little fantasy of right. having my own podcast. Well, now, this will fulfill that. Maybe I can drive from Waco up here and <laughs> join you guys. We have a fantasy that we have listeners. Right. <laughs> well, we podcast. do. We, we have some. No, we, we, have, we, we, actually, we actually do. That's I will but, send it to my family, and you'll get eight oh, that's instant uh, listeners. Awesome. That's really good. We will like that. That'll be no, a good thing. It is, it is a, it's a lot of fun for us to do, and we're excited to get um, to talk with you. You're now uh, as a, prof a professor of journalism at Baylor University. Now, uh, it, as I was reading your bio, I also saw that you did your undergraduate degree at Baylor as well. Can you just give maybe a little bit of background of when you left Baylor the first time, sort of what was your early career like? When I left Baylor, I thought I would never come back. Wow. You know, I thought I was never going to live in Waco again, and I thought I was never going to step on that campus. And then, you know, I would get invitations as an alum to come back, and I would, and it was always a little, like, begrudgingly... Because I had a horrible experience at Baylor. I was a working class kid who had grown up Baptist, whose Baptist upbringing was such a huge part of my identity. And then when I got to Baylor, I realized not all Baptists are created equal. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really, uh, I experienced racism and classism for the first time. And you know, when you're at that age, I was 17 where things just weigh on you so much. And it was so expensive to be there. It was like a really hard time for, for myself. I didn't leave because my father had did not want me to leave home. Mm -hmm. And I had to fight with him to just get out of the valley where I'm from, the southernmost tip of Texas, down by the Texas-Mexico border. And so I could not imagine leaving even though I was having such a horrible time because I was afraid that I one I didn't want to go home and two it was like it was kind of like um, a sense of of defeat if I had so I stuck it out 
And I always had this little place in my heart that that felt like there was a little hole there, you know? I don't know, like a little open wound. So coming back to Baylor uh, has allowed me to kind of close that and has allowed me to kind of understand a lot of how religion influences so much of yourself, so much of what you think about uh, how you see yourself in the world, how you see in good and bad ways, you know? I mean... So it's been uh, it's been a journey. It's been wonderful. To Does be it back. allow you to you, I imagine you have a level of empathy for other students that you can see, and you can almost probably read on their faces sometimes that they're going through a similar situation, probably not knowing exactly what they were getting into, and now they're at a university, and they, you know they, sometimes they feel like their heads on a swivel. And and, and they, I think college in general is like that, especially for students that have. Uh, money, insecurity issues, you know, I didn't realize how much of my time was spent worrying about whether I was going to have enough money to pay my bills, you know, and that's a real concern for students. My concern for students, any student, whether they're at Baylor or not, is do we have the kind of jobs out there for the amount of students we're sending out into the world? And students are saddled with debt. And for a lot of people, if you don't finish college, you end up taking that debt with you forever. And for a lot of people, they never recover from that, you know? And I am, it's heartbreaking. Right. So then they're out there without a degree and tons of debt, don't qualify for financial aid because uh, they maybe you know, went to a school that wasn't a good fit. Mm-hmm. Was there any difference in terms of attitudes about race between when you went there and when you're, and now that you're back there, have things changed at all? Or I know that's a really like big question, but I'm just curious. Well, what you're it, saying. It, definitely campus is a lot more diverse, mm-hmm. but there's still some, there's, there's still this underlying, you know, I, I mean, I hear from my Latino students, the same things I was complaining about you know, in the 90s. That being said, I think that those are complaints a lot of first-generation working-class kids have in campuses all over the country. You know, sometimes you're the first person to break out and you really are like a... You really are like a pioneer. (laughs) And, and, And by pioneer, I don't mean like, oh my God, you're like the first one. I mean like really are like going out into this dark thing that yeah. no one you well, know a, has explored. a bunch explored. of other people who have lots more experience whose parents have, whose yeah. parents are proofreading their yeah. essays before they turn them in and uh-huh. then you're like sitting feeling like you're the worst writer because you're still writing passive sentences <laughs> yeah. you know but so i i guess being in the college uh world has taught me that there are a lot of inequities, you know, because if your parents are very invested in your education, you're going to have a much easier time. If your parents are proofreading the emails you're sending your professors, you're probably going to have a more convincing email. If your parents have already gone through the process, they're going to have the language for you, to give you the language to be able to navigate that world. So I worry most about the kids that are at universities where they feel like they don't belong there that end up leaving with all this debt and then that debt becomes what defines them for a very long time. Mm-hmm. How did you, just out of curiosity, you, your parents weren't college people. My father and my grandmother, my father and my mother grew up in a tiny ta- tiny ranching community uh, right across the Tamaulipas border by the Mexican state of Nuevo León, which is about 40 miles 
south of Star County, Texas, about three, two and a half hours, three hours from the third largest city in Mexico, uh, Monterrey. My father had a second grade education. My mother had a fifth grade education Be because in my mother's community, my mother would have kept going to school. But first off, a young woman does not go to school because you're going to find a husband and he's going to take care of you. Very patriarchal, Mexican, mm -hmm. ranch, country. I mean, which which is not an ethnic thing because you'd find that same attitude in rural America, sure, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and my mother loved school so much that when she was done with fifth grade, which was the, the last grade she could go to, my mother went and re-enrolled in fifth grade again. And it breaks my heart to think about all the untapped potential we see in this world because people don't have opportunities. Because in the United States, education is a human right. In many parts of this world, it's privilege. It's a luxury. And in my mother's day, it was a huge luxury. Plus, it was something women did not do, mm -hmm. you know. And so I, my mother is this incredible force. You know, who when I went to Baylor as a freshman, she went to seminary uh, to become a pastor. And um, I think about her and it makes me want to cry for every young girl out there that wishes she could do something bigger than what she's able to mm -hmm. because the world hasn't caught up to them. Did you see the documentary Girl Rising by any chance? Have you no. seen that? <clears throat> Basically, the the argument in the film is like the biggest untapped resource in the world is girls' education because there are so many cultures where girls are just either they're not part of the educational system or they exit early like what you're talking about. And like what you were saying, it's this amazing untapped resource that the culture is just not ever able to take a, take advantage of. It's a great documentary. My mother still to this day is better at math than I am, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and she is super resourceful. If she needs to fix something, she figures out a way. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is sad that there's, this is still a, this is still a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, did you begin reporting straight out of undergrad or did you go to grad school right out of undergrad? I went to grad school right out of, out of, I went to grad school right after Baylor, and I went from Baylor to UC Berkeley. The only thing in common those two schools have is the bear as the a mascot. That is it. <laughs> that is it. Uh -huh. Yeah, Berkeley's the, the, where did you live when you were there? Did you live in? My first year I lived in, in San Francisco, uh -huh. and I commuted because one of the women that I that was in my program found a rental, and it was like a tiny little place that, you know, one of us slept in the living room and one of us slept in the bedroom, and sometimes there were fights about who got the bedroom and who got the living room. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second year, uh, it was a two-year program I lived in Berkeley because I was on that campus 24-7 that it was like, I need to be close, close to that video lab, you know, where yeah. I was spending most of my last year yeah, it's just a crazy living situation out there i know that i was just talking to some friends who are living in san francisco and they were talking about the gentrification of oakland which is it is crazy so quickly it is so crazy yeah. i mean the san francisco of the 90s that i knew is not the san francisco of today i was there a couple of years ago and i was just shocked and that's because i worked in san francisco after grad school for a couple of years 
in the dot com world. Remember when they used to call yeah. website <laughs> when it was dot com? My God, what is that bubble? You're what? What bubble? There's no bubble. <laughs> it's always going to be here forever, right? <laughs> It's so crazy. Yeah. But I was there, but part of the dot-com boom, and then, you know, I also experienced the bust. I worked mm -hmm. for a tiny website that um, these people were so ahead of their time. It was Latino.com. And the truth is that maybe today that website would succeed, but back then when, you know, people weren't, not, not everyone had internet connection. Not everyone was dialing into what was going on online and... And everything looked like archived pages. You yeah. know, it was not even yeah. pretty to look yeah. at the internet for a long time. I kind of miss it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> now everything looks the same. You're like, a digital nostalgic. I really am. I really. But you am. look like you're 12. How is this possible? <laughs> well, I am. I, I am a millennial and a professor. Which I, I, like, say, I like to tell people that yeah. millennials are are actually the teachers now. They're yeah. not the students anymore. And also, Adam has Benjamin Button disease. So <laughs> I know. By next year, he's going to look 10. <laughs> So you made a conscious decision at some point to then go back to Texas. Was that was it a specific job or was it wanting to be home or was it the things that you wanted to cover? What was it about the Laurel? You'd, you'd made your way out of it and then you found your way back in Texas. Texas always calls me back. And let me tell you, my friends from New York and my friends from California like to talk a lot of smack about Texas. <laughs> but the truth is, they deep, deep down inside, they like it. They like it. Be because Texas is, I, I, I mean, I'm not one of those nationalists, but I like that the real estate is affordable enough yeah. that a single woman can buy a house and have her own backyard, which I would never be able to afford in a place like New York City mm -hmm. yeah. or San Francisco, for that matter. Um, but I also, you know, you can't find a good breakfast taco anywhere else like the ones you find in Texas. The New York Times wrote a story about how the best breakfast taco was in, in Austin, Texas. You should have seen the comment section. It was like all these Texans from Houston, yeah. from the border, from San Antonio going, what? And what makes a New York Times reporter an expert on breakfast tacos? Right. Um, but no, you know, I, I, uh, I was in New York. I had an internship with the New York Times when I graduated from grad school, and I um, I was very lucky that they asked me to stay and uh, gave me an extension to my internship, which would have been a, a year total. And I came back home to visit my parents, and I was on my way to California to pick up my car because my car was still in Berkeley. And my father died in a car accident, and that kind of changed everything for me. It's like experiencing such a profound loss at such a young age, like shook my core and changed my life completely. I ended up teaching high school English for a year, and uh, because I was one of eight kids, all of my siblings were married. The idea that my mother, who had never slept alone in her life, was going to have to be alone in her house after her husband of some 40-something years had died so suddenly, it just broke my heart. And I came came to the back to Texas. I and the New York Times was so great. They're like, whenever you're ready to come back, we, we, we you know, this, you have your your extension to your internship. And I taught a year teaching high school, and it's 
it's like an incredible thing to have so many walking insecurities around you because it kind of gets you out of your own head yeah. to deal with kids, you know. Where in Texas was the, the high it school? It was back at my old okay. high school. I was so I lucky. I did that. That's really, I went. You did? I taught at the high school I went to. And how old were you when you went back? Was it straight uh, out of college? Oh, no, no, no. I'd gone, I, I, was in, I worked in media for a while and then came back a few later. So it was my mid to late 20s, basically. So not that old. But it was really weird to go back and teach in your high school because you still know so many people who are there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Welcome back, Cotter. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I hadn't been so depressed. I was. It was my year of grieving my dad. Uh, um because there were so many things that um so it was so incredible to be back there and i think if i had been in a different space i could have probably had the experience i'm having at baylor now where i'm like kind of like connecting dots and going oh wow this but i was i was i was really in a very profound face of of grief which really i mean it comes back and forth you know it's people who've lost significant people in their life will tell you that it's it never goes away. It comes and goes. And sometimes it feels like it was just yesterday. But my little antenna, reporter antenna, never went off because I was like, it was like I was like a undercover reporter at a high school. <laughs> so I'd be like, what do you mean we can't get this? What do you mean that's a decision at central office? So the whole time I'm like thinking about stories. And then later when I went to go work at the Dallas Morning News and wrote about education on the editorial board and then took a year to write a project about immigrant students in the Dallas school district, all those experiences came back and were super handy and they were also very informative because I knew, like, I knew the lay of the land. Like, I, I had gotten a blueprint to the, you know. So it was very instructive. So I, I and, you know, and then I kind of never left Texas. I went to San Francisco after I taught and worked at a dot-com. <laughs> and, and then they, we had, we were, like, opening offices all over the United States. And they're like, where do you want to go? And I said, well, you guys need a bureau in Texas. And I came to San Antonio because I had never lived in San Antonio, but I imagined San Antonio was to what Atlanta is to blacks. I imagined San Antonio was to Mexicans. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I want to go live there. <laughs> and um, I moved to San Antonio and my company went under, pretty much shut down overnight, like months after I got there. And I found myself having to think about unemployment because I didn't have a job. And one of my mentors, which is where I tell students, it's so important for you to get internships, for you to uh, really um, meet all these people that are in the profession. Because one of my mentors from the Philadelphia Inquirer was very good friends with the editor of the San Antonio Express News and said, hey, there's this young woman who just lost her job, but you should give her a job. And he called me in and he was like, we, I've been told I have to give you a job. So. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to do? <laughs> I wish it was that easy. But, you know, thank God I had some good clips. Yeah. And he was like, we have a job freeze, but we'll have a job in a couple of months. And that's how I ended up on the staff of the San Antonio Express News. Uh -huh. That's awesome. Did you? I, I was just curious. Where did the? Because I was when I was looking at all the stuff that you've been involved in, which is really amazing. How, how did the frontline thing happen? I was really curious about that. Can you the, set up what that is? Yeah. There. Well, do you want to? Would you like to? Well, you know, the University of California at Berkeley 
we had they had a program uh -huh. that was that would basically create programming for frontline. Ah, uh -huh, okay. And so, through uh, my mentors there, Lowell Bergman, who mm -hmm. Al Pacino played yeah. in The Insider, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and his wife Sharon, they uh, uh, they have always been supportive, and so and they knew that you know border stuff was my thing, and so I for them I traveled to. Um, I traveled to Chihuahua to do a piece about this town of potters where people didn't migrate because they were all making a living off of their pottery, which they had lear relearned to, mm -hmm. to make from the stuff their ancestors were making. You know, they had, the community had learned how to make it and they were, and they, they were. He was, he was reading about the Juan Quesada. Juan Quesada, who, who would. I mean, his pieces sold for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and he would, like, get invited to do workshops with, like, all these people all over the world. I mean, he he, and, and the town had kind of, you know, this incredible pottery that they were producing. And one of the potters, who was more of a commercial potter, potter said to me in Spanish, and I'll say it in Spanish because, and then I'll translate it, but he said, Yo no tengo que ir a los Estados Unidos. Yo no tengo que ir a los Estados Unidos a traer dólares. Aquí vienen y me los traen. He basically said, I don't have to go to the United States to bring dollars. They come here and bring them to me. <laughs> you know? And it was just so incredible. It was such an incredible, uh, fun week to spend. Those are my favorite. To go into a community that I don't know and kind of just figure out what the story is. And for the first few days, you're so nervous. It's not going to come together. And then one day the magic happens and things click. And then the story starts telling itself. So, so how do you get people to trust you in a situation like that? Like when you go in. Do they, I mean, you're a very warm person, so that's certainly part of it. But how do you get them? Because they're trusting Tell you with their stories. Tell my students that. Tell my students I'm a warm person. <laughs> because at some point they have to trust you with their story, right? They have to believe that what you're going to do is going to serve them well. I think that being authentic, and I tell my students all the time, you know, you need to be authentic. People can read that. People know the people will judge will will be able to judge whether they can trust you based on how authentic you feel to them and i really do want to tell people stories i really do want to tell the stories no one's telling i really do want to want to tell stories about spanish speakers to an english audience so my interest is very genuine like i have a curiosity and i those are the gigs that i'm like wow i can't believe i get paid for this i can't say that about all the work i do <laughs> but those jobs when i get to go on the field and just kind of uh and i would hope that the reason people trust me is because they're kind of really trusting that i am being genuine mm -hmm. you know i i often wish that i had the the magic ability to take my finger and touch a student's head and make them curious because it's just, and they are they are kind of naturally, but there's so many things in the system that we're educated by that kind of beat that back and tell you, eh, just kind of go along, be strategic, you'll do much better. And But that curiosity, the spark of that when you're working with students and they have that, you're like, oh my. That's like mana, you yeah. know, that's yeah. like, wow, it feeds your soul. It's like, wow, celestial bread, you know, <laughs> yeah. because it really, it, that you know that that, that student is going to do well because it's there's already some internal, you know, uh, motivation and curiosity for a journalist is so crucial. Mm -hmm. You know, I a lot of my stories have started like, mm, I wonder if there's other people doing that. I wonder if you know. I'm always very curious about 
I'm very curious about the videos where people <laughs> whisper into a mic. <laughs> what is that about? I just learned about that. <laughs> where they scratch the what the hell is that about? I'm so curious about that. This is like a subgenre. I'm not aware of this. I'm going to have to go look. Have I'm still not... stuck in the people who show their puppy how to climb down the stairs videos. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Having having a, a four and six year old, I'm I'm fascinated by like YouTube for kids, and and they'll just watch toy unboxing videos all day. Like, that's a subgenre that's exploding, which is crazy. That's interesting because it, because it's the, the moment of joy of finding out what's inside the box. Yeah, I is guess that, so. That's really and how it works. Like Christmas. And kind of, yeah, and kind of seeing it, you know, in its full functioning capacity. It's, uh-huh. it's bizarre. It is bizarre. Or people that eat. And people watch other people eating. Oh, yeah. What is that about? I can't about? do that. What is that about? <laughs> I can't watch people eat. I can't do it. That's really, it's just, you know, but the, the other thing about curiosity, though, as you know, and you're, you're connecting between education and media is curiosity is the best defense for being lied to. Because if you're curious about what you're seeing when you're playing on the Internet and you're interested in finding out what it is, that's how you find out when, you know, something that you're being sold is actually just being made up by some poor, sad person, you know. Who's, <laughs> or um, a big corporation. Or a big, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your reporting has taken you all over the world now. And one thing that I saw you, I've seen it a couple times, whether it's an article or in a speech that you were giving, in which you said that all countries have their Mexicans or their Mexican. And I was really curious if you'd sort of explain that for the audience. I thought that was a really interesting concept, something, an insight that you've picked up on. You know, I was in Israel a couple of years ago, and um, there is a lot of Filipino service workers that I encountered and obviously Palestinians that crossed the border to come work. And so it's very jarring from what you read in U.S. media about the conflict there, because really it's like any border where people are crossing and it's very fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like any border where certain people get permission to cross back and forth and others are not. Right. And. I do a lot of work in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti. It's the same thing. The The Dominican is a Mexican in New York City, but the Haitian is a Mexican in the Dominican uh-huh. Republic. So on the Haitian-Dominican border, it's the same thing. You know, it's a very porous border. It reminds me of the U.S.-Mexico border where people cross back and forth and where there's official crossings, but people can very easily cross through unofficial crossings. I mean... I crossed that border maybe 13 times, and I must have crossed it illegally most of the time. I mean, I remember uh, crossing it on the way from Guatemala into the U.S. with Hondurans on a raft. And one of them says to me, aren't you afraid? And I said to him, this is, this is an adventure for me. This is your life. If I get deported, I go to the United States, uh-huh. you know. Um, which reminds me constantly when I write about immigrants, just the privilege of being able, you know, the, the amount of privilege I have as a reporter who was born in the United States, um, that little blue passport book, you know, like the permission it gives me and that not everyone has it. The Guatemalan, the Dominican Haitian border is a lot like that. And, and the way Dominicans talk about Haitians reminds me of, of the way people in the United States talk about Mexicans or Central Americans. In Central in in, in Mexico, the the Mexican is a Central American. Mm. 
If you're in Chiapas, the Mexican is a child or a small woman picking coffee beans. Uh, and now increasingly, because it's getting harder and harder to cross into the United States, the Mexican is in the Mexican in Mexico is Central Americans, Hondurans, not just Guatemalans, Hondurans and, and Salvadorians um, who are, you know, fleeing very, uh, fleeing very violent uh, countries, dictatorships. Violent. I mean, El Salvador, for example, you know, you have people who really, oh, just strike all I feel like I went way off topic. Oh, no, that's okay. No, that's Sorry. fine. Because I'm actually kind of curious about, with all the stuff that's happened with the border, particularly when the family separations were going on, it seemed to conflict. Which is still going yeah, on. Which are still we, we going just, on. So there's, yes. there's still like 150 children yeah. who have not been and, reunited. And more just in the system. The system is, is bursting at the seams now. But there was this conflation of all of these cultures, right? And I have to say that, um, and I'm going to try to say this without getting upset, I saw the Michael Moore film uh, a couple days ago, the day it opened, or the day after it opened, and they played a little bit of that sound that was recorded inside of the, and it was the the, the small kids explaining where they were from. And they're just, they're, it's in the middle of screaming, and they're saying what country they came from. It is That's so, so heartbreaking. awful. Yeah. It, it's so heartbreaking. It's so horrible. And I thought about, when I was reading the coverage, and a lot of these shelters are along the Texas-Mexico border, I'm sure a lot of these Mexican-Americans that are working some of these shelters don't have never met someone from Honduras, mm. you know, because it's not like there's a ton of Central Americans on the border, although there's more and more of them, because as you know, there are two borders, the border that is up against the river, in the case of Texas, and then the border that's an hour north, in the case of Alfurias or Sarita, where you have another stop checkpoint. And so when migrants cross over, they still have to get over that other border where they're going to get stopped again. So, I mean, a lot of migrants die between that hour-long drive by the river and up further north, uh, heading north to Texas. And so I wondered how many of these shelter workers, even though they people might assume that because they look similar or they speak Spanish, that they might understand how to console these kids. But the truth is that even for a lot of Mexican-Americans where I come from, it's like they don't have any interaction with Central Americans and they do see them as the other. It's also so interesting to see how easy it is for people to assimilate. They're worried we mm -hmm. won't assimilate. Are you right. kidding me? It happens rather quickly. And then someone else becomes the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the whole notion of even the notion of border, I think, is a really interesting concept. And there's been a lot of people have done some really good writing about, you know, what does a border mean, you know, sort of philosophically? Because, of course, it's not, like, it's not like there's a red line, right? I mean, borders in class, borders in cultures and things like that, we're constantly negotiating them all the time. And... It's, it's sort of like the sense of what a legal border is that gives a sense of a national identity, but the world doesn't work like that. The world's much more complicated than that. I'm always confused when, when Christians start the border talk because I feel like those are man-made lines. Mm -hmm. And 
speaking if you are a believer from a biblical standpoint like that you would be opposed to that because then the bible tells us to take care of the stranger in our land mm -hmm. and so i'm always amazed how immigration how immigration could be conflated with the whole religious right as an issue because it goes against what any any biblical teaching mm -hmm. about you know being a hospitable Yeah, there's guest. been a lot of writing about hospitality as a, as kind of a cultural concept. That that's one of the ways that you can kind of measure the value of your culture is how much you're able to become hospitable to people from outside. Especially for a country that has long relied on cheap or free labor. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this country has been built. And immigration. From <laughs> for, all over, yeah. you know. So when I went to Ellis Island and saw just the way Eastern Europeans were being treated, It's like we have amnesia when it comes to immigration because we've always been horrible. We've always been uh, threatened. Uh, and the truth is, I'm sorry, there are jobs that U.S. Americans will not do. There are jobs that no matter how much you paid people, they would not do. I look at all those construction sites that are let so many Mexicans, Latinos, immigrants, uh, Central Americans working construction jobs. I mean, Central Americans rebuilt New Orleans after mm -hmm. Katrina, you know, and those jobs are so dangerous. And I always wonder about the numbers of, of people who fall and die and and I've read stories about how these companies go and pay the family like $5,000 and ship back the body. And, and you think we do live in a society that uses God uh, to do shameful things to justify inequities that we have created. You know, there is, why is there immigration? Well, because there is an unchecked need for cheap labor in this country. Mm -hmm. There is, uh, and this has been going on for hundreds of yeah, years, yeah. you know. And there's other, you know, the, the other part of it I think is always interesting is to think about cultures where borders aren't how you, you know, uh, nomadic cultures where there aren't physical boundaries. You know, you sort of, you have to follow the seasons, you have to follow whatever it is that allows your population to live. So they didn't have, so it's just funny to, you know, this history of like creating borders in the Middle East, right, which was just kind of like you're 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 you know you're essentially putting up fences where people don't use fences right so uh, i that border has changed so much in my lifetime and and it when i was a kid i grew up about 13 blocks maybe like maybe a mile from the river two miles from the river and uh when my grandfather would come and stay with us uh he lived in mexico he would sit on the porch, just like he would back at his ranch in Mexico, even though we didn't ever sat on the porch. But he, he, anytime he was there, he'd sit on the porch and then he would tell, he would just yell, Trae me un taco. Just bring me some, bring me a taco. And it was usually because there was some guy who had just crossed the river and was walking past our house and my grandfather wanted to feed him, give him water. You don't see that anymore. Mm. You don't see people. And people are, it's so heartbreaking. People... It's become a, I don't recognize the border. It's not the border I grew up on. It's militarized. Mm -hmm. People are herded like animals. We wouldn't even treat animals the way we treat some of these people. And it is so heartbreaking. And, and 
it's sad because there's a large population in this country that has bought into the the idea that they're less human or less deserving or that they're criminals or that they're rapists. And I always say that that's just an excuse to to turn the other eye to injustices because then you don't have to think about it. All you can say is like, well, they're lawbreakers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you don't have to worry about their humanity. Then you kind of clean your hands off. But mm-hmm. it is, I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a child of immigrants today versus when I grew up because I didn't have the internet or a guy in office reinforcing these crazy ideas about people who are really migrating to work. And my family, you know, they... My great-grandmother was migrating. My grandfather, they would follow the seasons. They would come to the U.S., pick cotton in King Ranch. They would go back. They would go to California. They roamed all over as migrant workers. I was a migrant worker till I was about 14. I should add that I was the world's worst migrant worker <laughs> because I cried all the time. I didn't understand why we had to do this. I hated eating tacos with dirt the water was hot i just was like oh my god i, I remember telling my dad because it was in the in the 80s and i remember telling my dad we should be picketing like cesar chavez and then my dad's like and who's gonna feed you okay who's gonna feed you and i'm like oh this is an injustice and so i can't imagine like what it would be like to be a young kid with immigrant parents right now hearing what's coming out Well, I want to turn real quickly just to uh, maybe a, a happier topic to get your opinion as the official representative I'm of a Texas. Mexican soap opera, telenovela. <laughs> so I'm sorry, no, I go no, negative. Fine, fine. Okay. Tune in um, next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I just briefly wanted to hear your thoughts on Bento O'Rourke. So he's a a fellow, uh, grew up in a border town, um, is you know rep- representing that population sort of in a, in a way, um, but uh, you know is I I do. But the, the nicest thing that I'll say about Texas, I, I think it is uh, a reflection of what the future of America looks like. It's, you know, 40% Latino as it is. And, you know, it, it's it, it's looking like that uh, that population will outpace uh, uh, white by in a couple of years. I mean, it's, it's coming up, right? Um, so just interested in, in, in watching him and watching him his videos go viral on some of the, the questioning about... Um, you know, racial injustice and and uh, what that might mean to the state of Texas and to the United States. It is so interesting. I was watching the debate between Beto and Ted, and uh, it was so interesting because what what Beto is saying is like a, like the most basic human thing you can say about police shootings that target unarmed black men of immigration you know and and it's like we're living in a time when what he's saying seems like oh my god but it's do you know that's mm-hmm. that that's so while i was watching the debate i'm like this is kind of sad that we live in a time that not enough white people are saying these things out loud or feel like they can because i know that there are a lot of white people that feel the same way as beto and somehow if a white person says it it's almost like better because Uh, there are other white people that are listening to you, <laughs> right, yes. you know, yeah. as opposed to like a Latino or a black. It's like, oh, my God, those people, yeah. there they go again. I will say, you know, I'm a journalist till the end. So I am, am curious by the Beto narrative. Sure. 
and how you know politics is a lot about creating yeah. narratives around candidates yeah. um ted cruz does not represent texas or i don't know when he says he represents texans i have no idea what texas he's talking about or what texans he's talking about so he's so out of step it might just be that it's a numbers game maybe latinos will continue to vote and the number will grow but unless latinos and blacks vote it does not matter that their size is that the size or the space they're taking up changes that does not matter because really you 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 if you look at the demographics of texas you, you don't i don't understand how someone like ted cruz hmm. is the senatorial uh the, the senator right and the senatorial candidate or the one leading according to polls i don't believe polls either so i just feel like they those polls can't measure the people that are texting frantically texting relatives from from you know their phones asking them to to vote for a bit though because mm -hmm. there is a there is like a an upswell of that but i think it's it's reflective of our times more than anything they're you know uh jones in alabama mm -hmm. That was huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, there's this, you know, again, this is sort of like a remnant of the Michael Moore film, but this idea that there are such a large number of people who are kind of on the on on they're they're on an edge between whether they're actually going to start believing that their participation is meaningful or not. And it's like, I mean, it is just incredibly meaningful for them to be involved in the in the system. The more that they're disaffected from it, the more sort of the, the sort of anti-democratic effort is winning, basically. And that's not good for any of us. Really. So maybe it's going to take time for people to really buy into a political system. Uh, and I think for for immigrants, my parents were became citizens in the 90s and uh, my mother votes in every election, and sometimes she votes for people I wouldn't vote for, you know, And but I'm glad that she gets to vote. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad some of my relatives don't vote at all, because you'd be surprised who they would pick. Um, but I think it's a numbers game. You know, whether we whether the numbers show up, this mm -hmm. time I don't know. It'll, it's, I am going to be watching November 6th. That's what yeah. I, I'm going to be watching Ted and Beto. Go at it. <laughs> and isn't it funny? The Latino anglicized his name. Right. <laughs> to and Ted. He, that's what he's taking on, yeah. And, and then Beto, you know, who grew up on the border and is very, I mean, the thing is, I know a lot of white people from South Texas that to me are very Mexican. They're very culturally yeah. Mexican because their experiences, I mean, we forget to, to, to calculate or to add what it feel the how your environment is going to shape you and in El Paso I meet all kinds of white people that feel like Mexican Americans uh -huh. to me they did you know they don't feel like a white dude from Dallas they feel like a Mexican American yeah he's he's got a very interesting kind of charisma that's really unusual yeah just, I hear echoes of Robert Kennedy yeah, you know? yeah 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 exactly yeah I've seen just there's a genuineness and it just seems to it. You know, and I think people, including me, get very tired of feeling like you're getting processed messages from people, whether it's because of their participation in media or in politics or whatever. And that kind of authenticity that kind of comes across is really, you know, it's really kind of stunning because it's just, you know, that kind of, it's so hard for it to kind of cut through the the communication environment we're in now because it's so layered. It's so, it's so layered. It's like even when Ted, and I refuse to call him anything but Ted even when Ted was you know uh, calling him out and, and it was very clearly trying to entangle him on all these things that then he'd have to explain I'm like it's just that 
Beto's position Beto's positions are a lot more nuanced you know mm-hmm. like Ted is like I'm for the flag <laughs> did I say that with enough of a twang because I'm trying really hard I mean it, he I th- there's nothing genuine about Ted Cruz nothing nothing and I am shocked that you know someone like him represents people in Texas because you know at the core of it yeah there are some people that are afraid of this demographic shift there are some people that 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 have grievances that that we should all be listening to regardless you know we i think that's part of the problem i think some a a faction of the people out there don't feel like anyone's listening to them except for crazy people you know and um i don't know that demonizing people is going to work for very much longer at least not in texas it's that those days are numbered maybe it won't happen this election cycle but those days are numbered well thank you very much for joining us we really appreciate it you were a lot of fun to have on here oh thank you guys we're going to stick with that i think uh I think Ralph's got the right word there. I, yeah, I think it's, yeah. Thank you very much I for talking for to us. I was going for charismatic. Yeah, <laughs> that too, yeah, yeah. Just but, kidding. Yeah, no, no, those are all good things. Thank you very much for taking Thank the time to talk so to us. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate this is, it. This all was right. fun. This was fun. Thanks. All right, until next time. <laughs>